So the first thing to say, look, it's fantastic to be in Cardiff. Uh, Cardiff's where I grew up. It's where I went to school. It's where I made some of my best friends. Um, and it's also where I finished my PhD at the old English library, which is stuck behind Lidl these days. I remember about 14 years ago, uh, putting in the very last full stop and pressing send. So I have incredibly sort of fond memories of, uh, of this neck of the woods. Um, it's also where I first came to work as a caseworker um, for Jenny Willett, who's the local MP in Cardiff on Woodville Road, just down the road from here. Um, and that was the first time that I ever saw anybody spit at an asylum seeker. And let me tell you what I mean by that. If you're a caseworker working for an MP, especially in cities like Cardiff, multicultural, highly diverse, you do a lot of work with people who are trying to solve problems with their immigration status. So typically I would be working with um, someone from Iran who had come to the UK and asked for protection here as a refugee, and then a year had passed, or a year and six months, and they'd never received anything from the Home Office, never heard any word at all, and they'd finally lose patience, not surprisingly, and they'd turn up at the MP's office and ask for help. Or there would be the mum who lived in Cardiff, but the dad and the kids were separated... Let's say they were in Turkey and they couldn't get a visa to come to the UK. And so as an MP's caseworker, you would have to meet that person on Friday and they would be in bits because they would say, look, we don't understand why I'm not with my toddlers. Here are the pictures of the kids. Here they are growing up without me. And it was heartbreaking. And you were trying to find solutions for those guys. Or it was people who were in immigration detention centres. Detention centres are a sort of rather little known part of our immigration system, but it's essentially where people are put before being deported to the country that the UK government wants to send them back to. And they happened in the media recently because of some of the very grim, inhumane things that happened there. Um, and one of the jobs that I did was trying desperately to work out who was and wasn't in these centres and how we might try and get them out. And one day, typical on a Friday, I met with somebody who was from, in this case, Sierra Leone. He had all of his worldly paperwork from the home office and from his family explaining his situation in two plastic Tesco bags. I did a bit of work with him. I took him to the door of our office. I shook hands with him. I said, good luck. And as he left that office, the gentleman walking the other way down Woodville Road, not half a mile from here, didn't break stride, looked up, said the word asylum and spat into the path of the guy who was walking in front of us. Didn't even break stride to do it. And this lecture today, as Kerry has said, which will be sort of an hour, an hour and ten minutes or so, will be to try and work out how we got to that situation, how we got where we are now in terms of public and also political hostility towards migrants. And I've got a thesis, all good lectures should have a thesis, so here's mine, that British politicians, sometimes helped and sometimes hindered by the media, have lurched from generosity towards immigration, and we'll see there certainly have been periods in the last three or four generations when migrants have been extremely welcome to the UK, have lurched from that position to extraordinarily cruel restrictions of the sort I've just described that have ruined and upended migrants' lives in cities like Cardiff and elsewhere. And that that confusion has not just been something that happened in the last four or five years, and we'll talk about the Windrush scandal, but rather that Windrush scandal is a result of years of confusion and years of bad policymaking, which have built up and brought us to a point where we were detaining, kicking people out of the country, British citizens who had every right to be here, and get swept up 
in the hostile environment and the Windrush scandal, both phrases that you'll hear me use rather a lot. So we'll be talking about three things in particular. One, the Windrush scandal, um, a personal tragedy for those people who were caught up in it, and I'll talk more about that. But I would also say quite confidently that it is the biggest, the single biggest UK policy failure of modern times. We'll talk about how we got here, 70 years of hostility towards migrants and the two great institutions that have brought about that hostility, and that's politics and the press. And also, and this is maybe the more uh, freewheeling bit of the lecture, we'll think a little bit about how that's happened, and specifically about the gap between what politicians think the public want to happen on immigration and what the public actually, over and over again, say they want, which is quite a different thing. And to take us through that journey, just to kind of keep us nicely rooted, we'll go via some of the most famous political figures of recent history. So we'll meet up again with Winston Churchill, with Margaret Thatcher, with Tony Blair and Theresa May. A handful of caveats before I start. One is I don't think for a second that immigration to the UK started just after the Second World War. That is where this lecture will start. But there are a whole heap of brilliant books that I will recommend now that, um, that can cover off some of the areas that won't be covered this morning. Uh, Black and British by the historian David Osoga is fantastic. Um, Bloody Foreigners by Robert Winder goes all the way back to the Angles and the Saxons and explaining kind of the first people to land on, on British shores in Anglo-Saxon England, if you, if you want to go back that far. And a really interesting book uh, by Maya Goodfellow called Hostile Environment. Um, there are a thousand things to argue with in that book, but it is a really fantastic long history of how we ended up with such hostility to migrants in the UK. And the, the lecturer will try and answer a question that Maya Goodfellow poses. And she says, is it anti-immigration politics, not immigration itself, that is one of this country's most serious problems? Is it anti-immigration politics, not immigration itself, which is one of this country's most serious problems? So, the Windrush scandal. You might remember all this. This is just a reminder, 2017, 2018, a whole series of stories started to break in the Guardian newspaper, in particular, Amelia Gentleman, who's also written a very good book about this, if any of you have a lot of reading time on your hands, um, starts to cover stories, and here's what she was found, that British citizens, overwhelmingly black British citizens of colour, were being kicked out of this country. They were losing their homes, they were losing their jobs, they were being denied NHS care. They were being bunged into those deportation centres that I mentioned earlier. And nobody could quite understand what on earth was going on. And in this article, a gentleman called Albert Thompson, this is one of the first big stories that broke what was happening without any of us having really noticed up till now, April 2018. British families, originally from the Caribbean, who were suddenly being denied everything. And that man, Albert Thompson, he gives a quote, he says... In this piece, they wanted £54,000. I did not have 54 pence. He was homeless, he was destitute, he needed urgent NHS care for cancer, and at the end of it he was told that they didn't consider him a British citizen, so he'd have to foot the bill himself. Freelance journalists, so occasionally if you're very lucky, an editor comes knocking on your door and says, Russ, can you explain to our readers what's going on? And so I wrote a piece for Public Finance magazine in 2018, one of my regular haunts, to try and explain what I thought was going on. Um, and here's what I wrote. These are the families who have worked long hours, paid their way, 
and took their place at the heart of British society as the country rebuilt itself after the war. We like the idea that migrants will contribute to society and integrate into everyday life. These guys tick all the boxes. Plus, the wind rushes are associated with the institutions that we value most above all the NHS. There's quiet recognition that Caribbean migrants made this contribution in the face of racial discrimination. The idea of messing them around now as they settle into retirement and a quiet life is deeply unpopular. So, how do we get here? Um, one thing to say very quickly up front is there is a perfectly legitimate argument that describing people who travelled from the Caribbean to the UK in the late 1940s through to the 60s, describing those migrants is sort of the wrong word because we're talking about British citizens who are moving to Britain. It's a bit like describing people who go from Yorkshire to London as migrants now. It doesn't really make any sense. I will use that phrase just for the consistency of this lecture, but I'm aware that, uh, that it's not quite as straightforward as that. So 1948, one of the most famous moments in modern British history, certainly one of the most famous boats in British history, HMS Windrush, which has set itself in the West Indies and has arrived in the docks in Essex. And on board, 492 passengers from the British colonies in the Caribbean, and depending on which account you read, somewhere between 1 and 18 stowaways. There's always stowaways on boats. People who decided they wanted the journey but couldn't pay for it, so hid away to come along anyway. And it's crucial to remember that people were invited to the UK. This wasn't a boat that turned up out of nowhere. The British government knew it was coming. And the British government partly knew it was coming because there had been a royal commission around the same time that said that there were 140,000 job shortages to fill the post-war labour shortage. And, although the Commission didn't recommend that this was how they did it, it was pointed out there was also a very large number of British citizens in the colonies who might want to come and help rebuild the country after the war. The other thing, and here's the evening standard, and you'll see in the top right there, welcome home. It's a kind of an ironic headline. I think it probably is referring to the fact that for people travelling from the colonies to the UK, a phrase we don't really use much anymore, but a phrase that got used a lot then was mother country. And you read the letters home and the articles written subsequently about this movement of people, which we're going to talk about, and the pride in moving to the mother country was incredibly strong for people. So this headline, welcome home, was sort of a slightly sarcastic take on that. That said, more than half the people on HMS Windrush had also served in the British military during the Second World War, mostly in the RAF. So they had already spilt blood, worked for the British war effort, um, and so had a loyalty to this country, which was recognised both here and in the colonies. Also in 1948, something very, very strange happened, and this is the first chance we're going to have to talk about Enoch Powell, just in case anyone doesn't know, Enoch Powell would, by the late 1960s, be the most famous racist politician in the UK. We'll talk about him a bit more. But in 1948, he did something that was sort of the opposite of racism. He sat as a young Conservative Party researcher, and he produced a paper, along with some other people, and it said this. There must be freedom of movement among its members within the British Empire and Commonwealth. New opportunities will present themselves not only in the countries overseas, but in the mother country. And that must be open to all citizens. So in other words, the man who had become most famous for a rivers of blood speech that accused black British citizens of doing things that were terrible all over the country, lots of which were lies. 20 years before that, he's saying, I tell you what, 
we have to make sure that anybody who lives in the British colonies and wants to come to the mother country is free to do so. So what happened? So you'll excuse me on this slightly. Um, I am not a natural data uh, creator. So this is a rather homespun graph. Immigration data now in the 21st century is basically awful. The Home Office doesn't really have a clue how to collect data. You go back to 1948, it really was very bad indeed. So this is all sort of coupled together from a series of sources. Um, historians, contemporaneous accounts, some of those books that I've already mentioned. So it's, you know, it comes with that caveat. And what have we got? Well, we've got basically a very typical 20th century migration pattern. Early doors, 1948, 1949, you've got a new venture. People moving from the West Indies to the UK, starting with HMS Windrush, lots more ships that followed. But the numbers are maybe 1,000 or 2,000 people. People were selling everything they had to make this move. And at that time, no one really knew what was going to happen next. And then you see that within four or five years, it becomes clear that the word coming back is that there are jobs, that life is, in the words of the historian Dominic Sandbrook, a long, hard slog for people coming from the Caribbean to the UK, but nonetheless, one that people were able to find a way to make a success. And then you see the numbers shoot up. And so you have like 53, 54, by the time you've got 55, it's going up towards well over 40,000 people taking this journey and these routes each and every year. So what were politicians up to? There's Winston Churchill, now seen as one of the great heroes of our age, less than heroic around this time. So Churchill did a few things in the 1950s. One was, and I didn't know this, my good fellow, I read her book, and I, again, I can't uh, stress enough how, how worth reading it is. My good fellow's book makes the point that when Churchill was planning for an election campaign that he never had to fight, one of the campaign strategies he suggested for his cabinet was that the slogan should be, keep Britain white. He believed that the arrival of people of colour from the Caribbean was deeply disruptive. What's more, he wanted to bring in laws to stop people from making that trip. And so, to quote David Osoga, in the early 1950s, Churchill asked government officials and various departments to devise mechanisms by which West Indians might be kept out of the country, contrary to the rights of entry and residency they enjoyed under the 1948 Nationality Act. The challenge was to draft legislation that specifically targeted non-white immigrants while not appearing to be motivated by racial considerations. In other words, to put that as crudely as possible, to try and stop people coming in from majority black countries while making it look like it had nothing to do with the fact that they were black. So, he wanted to do that. Here's another historian, Winston James. Building a strong case to block immigration from the Caribbean involved the gathering and analysis of data to show that black settlers constituted a problem which called for targeted immigration controls. Successive working parties could never find enough negative information. In other words, Churchill sent out all his best officials and ministers and said, find some proof for me that we shouldn't let anyone more in from the Commonwealth because it's bad for labour and it's bad for integration and it's bad for the economy and it's bad for this country. And they all came back and said, there is no such information. We cannot prove this because it basically is not true. That stopped Churchill in his tracks, but it didn't stop a succession of governments that came after that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this lecture talking about laws and legislation, because, to be honest with you, it's not terribly interesting, but I will run through it quickly where I can. So, for example, a new law introduced in 1962 now said that if you wanted to travel from the Caribbean to the UK, you could only do so if you had a voucher 
that guaranteed you a specific job somewhere on the UK mainland. What a surprise, the government very carefully controlled the number of vouchers that it was willing to give out. 1968, Labour government passed a law in just three days, specifically targeting British Asians, thousands of whom were living in Kenya, were being persecuted, were worried about what to do next, but had a British passport they hoped they could rely on to move to safety in the UK. British government, thoroughly spooked, 1968, three days, passed legislation specifically blocking them from making that journey. Then in 1971, in many ways, the kind of root of, of all evils, the 1971 Immigration Act, introduced what was called the right to abode. There is absolutely no question whatsoever the 1971 Act was deeply racist. And it was deeply racist because what it said was, if your family had left the British mainland, gone to the colonies, in the previous two generations, you can travel back whenever you want. But if you were born in the British colonies and you wanted to come to the British mainland, you had no right to travel. It introduced what, in the phrasing of that time, was a colour bar, which essentially is exactly what it sounds like. It says that if you are from a white family that has moved to the colonies, decided to make your life there, but you want to come back, you can do it. But if you are from a black family and want to do the same thing, you cannot. The sound that you could hear was the drawbridge cranking up as the British government decided after this period in the 1940s, after the war of saying we must remain open, people should come, they can rebuild our economy, of saying now we've decided we don't think that anymore, we need to be deeply restrictive and what's more, we're going to introduce some pretty nakedly racist policies to achieve that. I mentioned Enoch Powell. So I'll say a couple more things about him. I'll be completely honest, I am older than most of the people in this room, so I don't know how well-known Enoch Powell is as a figure these days. Um, I think of Enoch Powell as a bit of a, a mad and dangerous genius. He was not bought. He was brought up, he was one of those kids who learnt how to deliver political speeches, not in English, but in Latin, of course. And he would stand on his dining room table, and then the neighbours would be invited round. They'd all have to give him a round of applause when he just delivered the latest great piece of oratory, when he was about seven or eight. I sometimes wonder if he exists today, whether he would be one of Dominic Cummings's weirdos who was supposed to come in and tear up the system. There's no question that he was intellectually incredible. He thought in a whole new way. Also mad, also a racist. And to give you an example of some of the most dangerous parts of his racism, and it's worth stressing that a few years back it was the centenary of his birth, and there was a real movement from people who said, actually, maybe we've misunderstood Enoch Powell, maybe he had a point, maybe those risks and warnings about integration are coming true. Here are some of the things that he lied about. One, he said that there were gangs of young men of colour putting dog excrement through the doors of little old ladies on their streets and leaving them in fear. Absolute nonsense. It was the original example of one of those kind of racist memes that you see now on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. It wasn't true, and yet every kind of far-right platform used to tell this story. And suddenly they had an MP and a former Minister of Health telling the story for them and giving this, this huge amplification. He claimed that there were schools in his constituency where there was only one white child. Absolute nonsense. He did once go to a school and find that there, were, there was only uh, one white child in a classroom. It was because it was in the middle of an influenza outbreak and lots of families of all backgrounds had decided to keep their kids at school 
until the influencer was cleared. Of course, he didn't let little details like that get in the way of what was a useful bit of racist propaganda. And thirdly, he claimed that there were unsustainable pressures on GP services in his area. This was based on a single report on two A4 sides, contradicted by a whole bunch of other reports produced by people he knew in the NHS. He simply ignored those and went with the one that he had found that was flimsy and two sides long. Um, I'm sort of obsessed with Enoch Powell not being rehabilitated. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons I wanted to take that, uh, that short detour. OK, from Enoch Powell to somebody who uh, is much better known, I think, Margaret Thatcher. So Margaret Thatcher became Conservative Party leader and in 1978, one year out from a general election, she did what politicians, as we have seen, tended to do, which is to start thinking, how do I talk about immigration in a way that sounds quite tough? And the age before social media, if you wanted to communicate en masse with the British public, the way that you did it was to go on ITV's World in Action, World in Action used to get 23 million viewers whenever it was broadcast. For context, if you watch Andrew Marr on a Sunday morning, I've no idea if you're a masochist like me and you do, but there are only about 2 million people like you doing the same thing. So it has, there's no way of doing that today. But back in the late 70s, you could. 23 million people. So what did she say when she was on World in Action? We are hopefully going to be able to watch a short video. It's about four minutes. Well, we'll hear her say her things. The most extreme features of immigration control, which had so poisoned race relations, seemed to be disappearing. But there was soon a new twist to the politics of immigration. I now propose to take a turn to the right, which is very appropriate. <laughs> Up to this time, both Labour and the Conservatives had resisted the temptation to play the race card to win votes. But in the run-up to the 1979 election, the new Conservative leader had no such qualms. World in Action asks Conservative leader Margaret Thatcher about immigration, unemployment, pay policy, and about her future relations with Edward Heath and Enoch Powell. People are really rather afraid that this country might be rather swamped by people with a different culture. And you know, the British character has done so much for democracy, for law, and done so much throughout the world, that if there's any fear that it might be swamped, people are going to react and be rather hostile to those coming in. So if you want good race relations, you've got to allay people's fears on numbers. That's one thing that's driving some people to the National Front. They don't agree with the objectives of the National Front, but they say that at least they're talking about some of the problems. Now, we, the big political parties, if we don't want people to go to extremes, and I don't, we ourselves must talk about this problem, and we must show that we're prepared to deal with it. Mrs Thatcher's comments immediately polarised opinion. I think Mrs Thatcher's remarks are very much racist. I think she's perfectly right. And I do. She is talking racialist language and she is making the National Front more respectable in the eyes of the British people. I normally disagree with everything that Mrs. Thatcher says, but uh, I think this time for change it does make a bit of sense. The Shadow Home Secretary appeared to be firmly behind her. Don't you think perhaps that the use of the word swamped was a little emotive? I, the fears are there. And she, and she was saying what those fears were, and she's right. They are there. Willie Whitelaw was in the Shadow Home Secretary. He, he'd been building bridges to the immigrant community and so forth, and that and uh, so r r blew up those bridges. 
and infuriated him. And he, he certainly at that time, for a few days, very strongly contemplated resigning, which would, of course, have been a very grave step to take, because not only was he shadow home secretary, he was deputy leader of the party. In some quarters, Mrs Thatcher's remarks were even less well received. I remember going to see the Indian Prime Minister, I think it was in number 10 Downing Street, and I followed Mrs Thatcher as, as always, uh, and I was sitting waiting, and she came out of the room and stumped past me without even saying good morning, disappeared out the door, and I went in, and the man was sitting fuming. He, he was saying, terrible woman, terrible woman. And I said, it could be worse. She could have promised to take back India. So he just laughed, and we got on all right after that. Many considered that Margaret Thatcher had finally given in to the temptation to play the race card. Well, you must judge that. I think um, the swamping the remarks were designed to win votes, probably. I think swamping was a carefully calculated word intended to make the hair stand up on the back of people's necks and feel that only the Tory party would save us from some sort of black annihilation. I think there are sort of... Well, there are a million things that jump out. I think there are three things that uh, particularly jump out. One is um, that use of... Actually, I'll do it the other way around. One of the things that jumps out is, I hope the world is a slightly different place where hilarious jokes about taking back India don't elicit a little laugh from the guy and from the interviewer. Um, I think this language of swamped is the thing that has captured, captured the headlines at the time. It was clearly intended to. If you watch that video back, Margaret Thatcher manages to say the word twice in five seconds. This is not by mistake. It's not one of those political gaffes. This is scripted. It's why she went on telly. It's what she wanted to say. It's what she wanted to hear. In 2015, I can't do the maths, uh, 30, however many years later, when there were refugees on the outskirts of Europe trying to find ways to escape from civil war and persecution in places like Syria. David Cameron went on telly. He said he was very worried about the UK being swamped by migrants coming over the border. Easily the most depressing part of all this is that that particular language and that particular word, the suggestion of the all invasive outsider causing nothing but damage to the British people never really went away. Never really went away. Uh, however, one thing that isn't featured on that video, and believe me, I tried to find footage of this and I couldn't anyway, is that in that interview, Margaret Thatcher said something else, something that is less shocking but is nonetheless very important to note. And here's what she said. Either you go on taking in Forty or 50,000 immigrants a year, which is far too many. Or you say we must hold out the prospect of a clear end to immigration. And that is the view we have taken. We must hold out the prospect... Sorry, get that right? We must hold out the prospect of a clear end to immigration. <laughs> no ifs, no buts. Zero immigration. So let's think back for a minute to Churchill saying immigration is a bad thing. Too many people coming in from the Caribbean. We must stop it. Not being able to stop it. There's no reason socially why it's a bad thing. He can't stop it. But he's told everyone it's a bad thing and it's carried on nonetheless. Margaret Thatcher tells everybody, we must have zero immigration. So what happens from 1983 onwards? She gets to power a year later after this. She gets up to 1983. What happens? Net immigration from the Commonwealth 
runs at about 40 to 50,000 people each and every year. The overwhelming majority, family members reuniting people here in the UK already. This idea that politicians tell us that immigration is bad, that the politician has heard what the public are saying and so is going to act, she knows that people think they're being swamped, she wants to hold out the prospect of zero immigration, it's a lie because that never happens and because it probably isn't possible. But it's also a way of stoking, out, stoking up anxiety, but also allowing people to keep coming into the country into the face of that adversity, rather than setting up a country that is ready for immigration, dealing with it in a really sensible and smart way, both for migrants and people who are here already. So, what happens after Thatcher? They are. Jobs are good. They're always worth waiting for. So, Tony Blair. Um, I've whipped through a little bit. You'll notice I've whipped through rather a lot there. Whipped through Thatcher whipped through John Major. Partly we'll see a chart in a moment that explains why that kind of tenure that those guys were in charge in the 80s and early 90s is not a period where a huge amount of kind of immigration activity was, 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 was important to talk about. That's not to say that during the 80s, some of the, for example, race riots that were taking place on the streets of the UK um, are not very worthy of study in our time um, but it's not something I'm going to try and cover now. But Tony Blair came in with a whole different idea. He wanted to turn the UK, especially in 1997, from somewhere that was restrictive and difficult for migrants to get visas to come in, and somewhere where for generations politicians had said it's a bad thing if migrants do turn up, to somewhere that was much more open and welcoming and easier to come in. This took the form of making visas much easier and of opening up our borders very quickly with the European Union, especially after 2004. So the stats show there were two and a half million foreign-born, sorry, two and a half million more foreign-born workers working in the UK economy added between 1997 and 2010. Huge number of people, two and a half million foreign-born workers. In 2000 alone, the NHS went on a recruitment drive for 9,500 doctors and 20,000 nurses looking to recruit from outside of the UK. So if you look at the numbers that Boris Johnson is knocking around at the moment, talking about how many more nurses we need in order to cope with the coronavirus and all the rest of it, just from outside the UK in one year alone, Blair was looking to recruit 9,500 doctors, 20,000 nurses. So what did that mean for the UK population and immigration movement? Well, exactly what you'd expect. First thing to point out, Margaret Thatcher, remember, she comes to power at the end of the 1970s. So there she is after 1980. She says there's going to be zero immigration. What happens? Immigration toddles along the blue line there, blue line from outside the EU. It toddles along at 40 or 50,000 a year. Exactly what it had been for decades and decades. Anyway, so 1997, that blue line, especially people from outside the European Union coming in, that drive for public services. Again, that echo, people coming in, from the British Caribbean, uh, from the British Caribbean citizens from the colonies in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, coming in to run the NHS to help build up the UK economy, to do so much on the transport systems, especially in London, which have had this long, long connection with West Indian citizens. In you've got this huge growth after 1997, net migration numbers going up, almost touching 300,000 just before 2005, coming down a little bit, but significant growth. But if you're a journalist. The question you tend to ask is not what does this graph show me, but what doesn't it show me? What's hidden? In other words, 
If there was quite an impressive welcome, and I think there was, we have to be fair about that, for people who were coming to the UK to work in some of the institutions I've mentioned, who was not welcome? Those net migration figures don't just include doctors and surgeons and teachers, they include other people. How many of those had the red carpet rolled out for them? I'm going to talk about my greatest passion in a way, which is humanitarian immigration policy and the treatment of asylum seekers. So this gentleman is called Blaise Camber. It is not by Miss... Well, I mean, this is the only picture you can find of Blaise Camber. The fact that it is extremely kind of out-of-focus pixelated one is, for the most tragic reasons, not unsuitable. Um, he came to the UK in 2004. 2004 was a year when, in his home country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, civil war was killing tens of thousands of people every single month. He applied for asylum up in Middlesbrough. The UK decided that he shouldn't have asylum. He was returned back to the Congo, where, on arrival, government militias beat him, urinated on him, burned him with cigarettes, and locked him up in one of the most notorious prisons in Kinshasa. We know this because the people who paid attention were the local MP and the local media, who, with the help of Blaise's family, were at the very least able to tell this story of what had happened. And as somebody who is now a journalist and used to work for local MP, I think sometimes the heroes of some of the ways of scrutinising what the government are doing are forgotten. Local MPs have a huge role in that. But that doesn't change his fate. The Home Office, naturally, were asked what on earth they were doing about this. They had just told a man that he was safe, and he had been returned into the heart of absolute torture. And the government said, and I will quote the entire press release, we do not routinely monitor the treatment of individuals once removed from the UK. In other words, we washed our hands of it. We made our decision, we sent him out, and after that we don't make any effort to work out what happens next. So hostility, and I'm going to run through a few more bits of now new Labour government legislation that made life so much harder for migrants but also just a monumental administrative cock-up, which is less of a personal failure of government, I think, and almost a, a, a part of the process that made things so much worse. So hostility from government. What sort of rules got introduced by the new Labour government? You see the period of that graph, 97 to 2010. What, what else was happening? Well, there were laws passed that said you can't help asylum seekers, even if you don't know that that person would go on to seek asylum, if you made any efforts to help somebody find accommodation, find a job, give them money if they're on the street, you as a citizen were breaking the law. Asylum seekers, after they applied for asylum, could only get vouchers. They were no longer given mainstream welfare benefits to help them. They weren't given cash. Asylum seekers were given vouchers, which could only be redeemed for certain types of things in certain shops. Not surprisingly, those shops soon had queues that were seen as asylum queues, and the stigma and humiliation already heaped on families who were facing more than enough of that in their lives was made so much worse. There were, and if you work in policy at any point in your careers, you'll come across a thing I like to call zombie policies. Lots of people call them zombie policies. where The same ideas keep coming back time and time again. And even if they can't be worked out, and even if they can never happen, and even if they're against the law, someone somewhere in a government department will be trying to make it happen. In the Home Office, one of those is making people hear their asylum appeals outside the UK. 
Somebody comes to the UK, says, I'm a refugee, can you help me? The government decides no. You have a right to appeal, because everyone has a right to appeal. But the idea is that appeal would then be held either in a third country or you'd deport someone and hear their appeal there. They wouldn't be allowed to stay in the UK while that was built up. Repeated attempts by New Labour to make it happen. There's one very simple reason why it never really happens. Human rights law will not allow it. And finally, a bit more techie. Something was introduced which was called the Safe Countries List or the White List. And it was a list of countries where if somebody came and said, look, I'm a refugee, I'm from this country, can you help me? If they came from this country, the presumption was you could make as an official a quick decision to say no, because these countries were seen as safe. One of the countries on the list was Albania, which meant you had a situation which I saw firsthand on occasions when working for local MP all those years ago, where people who had been trafficked from a country which had one of the widest trafficking rings in the entire world were being told they were perfectly safe, they could be delivered straight back into the hands of that trafficking network to be trafficked almost certainly back around the world immediately afterwards. It is difficult to explain how stupid an idea that is, and yet it was a very real part of the policy environment in the 2000s. So I haven't talked as much about media as I expected I would, but here's a chance for us to do so. What some journalists realised around the same time is that slagging off asylum seekers and blaming them for every single problem you could think of sold newspapers. It's not like now. These days you don't see, you know, I can't remember the last time I saw somebody buying a newspaper in a shop. 2004, Daily Mail sold, I think, about 3 million copies. Other uh, tabloid newspapers selling about 1.5 or 2 million. Absolutely huge audience for these things. There's an excellent book by Greg Philo called Bad News for Refugees, which tries to quantify quite what this media environment was. And the figures that he comes up with is that in 2006 there was 1,961 stories about asylum seekers in the UK press. 2006, 1,961. Five years later, how's it looking? 1,351. So the number's fallen slightly, but there is still no question that people clicking on stories, people buying newspapers, people wanting to read were very interested in reading scare stories about asylum seekers, and editors and journalists were more than happy to oblige with some of the stories that you're seeing there. To try and put it into a bit of context, there was a point in the 2000s where if you picked up a copy of the Daily Express, one in four of the stories inside that newspaper were about asylum seekers. One in four, in a great big fat newspaper. I mentioned a minute ago people who are sort of forgotten heroes. I'll give you a couple more forgotten heroes. The Express only stopped doing that when its own journalists went to the editors and said, we will not write these stories anymore. Stop giving them to us. We don't want to write scare story nonsense about asylum seekers. Let us do some proper journalism. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work in a handful of kind of traditional newsrooms. I've worked at the Times in the past. The idea, if you're a junior reporter, of going to the editor's office, knocking on the door and telling them you refuse to do what they're telling you, I mean, it's not much fun thinking about what it'd be like in 2018 or 19. The idea that someone might have done it all those years ago, when those newspapers were so powerful, is a genuine small act of heroism. I mentioned cock-up very quickly. So, look at this lovely welcoming building. Isn't that nice? So that is Luna House in Croydon in South London. That is the place where it was built specifically by New Labour to process all immigration applications and claims. In 2004... 
there were a vast number of asylum applications, more than 100,000 once you add in family members. And it represented 48% of all immigration flow. That sounds like a kind of a wonky policy fact that, that isn't very important, but it means that asylum had become one of the key parts of an immigration system in the UK. It had to work. Did it work? I think you're going to be able to take a wild guess that it didn't. Set this place up, multi-billions of pounds, get a new IT system in. Guess what the new IT system does? It crashes. They spend two years building it back up again. Guess what happens when they press start on it? It crashes again. So there was simply no process in place for an appropriate, helpful government service for people who had thrown themselves on the mercy of this country. And to give you one example of what that looked like, Una King, who was Labour MP for Bethnal Green and Bow until 2005, when she lost to George Galloway. She wrote an excellent book called House Music, which was a memoir of her time. And she recalls talking to a junior minister and saying, look, there's lots of immigration casework where I am, in East London. Can you explain to me why I never get an answer? And the minister told her that at Luna House, they would get all the letters they got from MPs addressed to ministers, They'd put them into a wheelbarrow. They'd get the minister to sit in his office with the door open and they would wheel the wheelbarrow past, at which point they could write back to the MP and say, the minister has seen your correspondence. At no point did they ever receive an answer and, of course, at no point was the minister actually engaging with any of the cases that were being wheeled past him. Some stuff happens on our own doorstep. Cardiff, 2009. I don't know if I've mentioned it. I was working for local MP here in Cardiff, 2009. Um, and we got contact at the MP's office because somebody who had gone to work on Newport Road, just down the road from here, at, I don't think it's there anymore, but the UK Border Agency offices that used to be down there, had been making asylum decisions. That's what their job had been. And they had found two things. One was that the idea of granting an asylum decision, so telling somebody that they were a refugee and they could stay here safely, was a mark of embarrassment in that department. Never did it. And if you wanted to do it, you had to justify yourself a thousand times over. It was so much easier to say no. And to back up, culturally, this sort of thing, there was something called a grant monkey. And the grant monkey was a toy gorilla, exactly what it sounds like. And it was put on the desk of the last person who granted an asylum decision successfully in this Cardiff office. And it was a mark of shame to have that on your desk and you wanted to get it off your desk as soon as you could. You'd be delighted to know that when the UKBA did an internal investigation, they found that there were no racial connotations to the fact it was a stuffed gorilla. I will let you make your own mind up on that. So this is sort of what Theresa May inherited. We're zipping forward again. I'm obsessed with Theresa May. And when I wrote about Theresa May in my book, I called it the tragedy of Theresa May. And some people really didn't like that because their take on it was, look, this woman did some awful stuff. Is it really a personal tragedy? I think it is in a way. I'm just going to say why I think so. So there's a very good um, big biography of Theresa May by a guy called Christopher Jackson. And he tries to sum up what sort of England exists in Theresa May's head. Not an easy task if you're a biographer. But he writes, It is an England of cricket, an automatic Conservative Party membership, making a cake for the village fate. Modesty, propriety, hard work, thrift. It can also tilt into a genteel xenophobia towards the other. Genteel xenophobia is... Such a good description of this era of the British government. Pre the Windrush scandal coming to light, 
long after Enoch Powell had felt that he could stand up and be openly racist. You had something slightly different. Genteel xenophobia, this idea that the UK of the 1950s with cricket matches and village fates had changed and was never coming back. And it was okay to be angry about the people who'd taken it away from you. That's, that's kind of what I understand genteel xenophobia to me. And it was one of the reasons that when the Syrian refugees that we've mentioned were trying to make their way to safety in Europe after barrel bombs were being dropped on their homes in Syria, the government was fricked. It didn't really know what to do. There are accounts now coming out from sort of special advisors and ex-ministers who said we honestly had no idea how to deal with this because we'd never thought of the world in which this happened or a UK that could be affected by it. I'll make one party political point, if that's all right. I used to be a policy advisor working with the Liberal Democrats. Tim Farron was the leader between 2015 and 2017, around that time. I once had a chat with Tim about the refugee crisis uh, on the outskirts of Europe. And Tim had gone put on his wellies, he'd gone to the Greek islands, he'd waded into the water to pull boats as they arrived and to make sure the kids in those boats got medical care and warmth and food and water somewhere safe. And he told me that he did that because he wanted to do the right thing and to draw attention to the suffering. But also, politically, as he is a politician, he wanted to be the first party leader to be seen to go and do it. He wasn't the first. He was the only party leader in this country who went out and did it. The Home Secretary didn't go out and do it. Theresa May certainly didn't go out and do it. No one in the Labour Party went out and do it. So there was a sense of people being frozen in anxiety around this time, yet again by the immigration question. What Theresa May did do, however, was introduce what we now call the hostile environment, best represented by these monstrosities, which were sent to ethnically diverse, multicultural parts of London. I'm not going to read out what it says. You can see what it says. But it does across the middle there say, go home or face arrest, go home. That language wasn't chosen by chance any more than swamped was all those years previously. And yet it's not really the best way to understand the hostile environment. Hostile environment I always think of as more like a trawling exercise. It was a series of bits of legislation introduced in 2014 and 2016 that moved border controls away from visas and passport offices and airports and ports and into the private domain. So here's what those Immigration Acts in 2014, 2016 said. Now landlords were required to check documents before agreeing to rent or sell. Employers had to check documents ever more carefully than before, before agreeing to employ people. Banks must carry out background checks before opening accounts for people. There's an NHS surcharge for anybody who's either renewing a visa or coming into the UK from outside, reopening this canard that migrants are a drain on resources rather than the truth, which is that migrants bring more money into the economy than they take out. Home office guards were given stop and search powers of a type that had previously only been allowed for the police. And the home office set up data sharing agreements with other parts of Whitehall and charities... And as a journalist writes about charities a lot, this sticks in the craw most of all, also set up deals with charities who are there on the front line to help people. They were then sharing that data back with the Home Office so the Home Office knew who was getting help so they could take action against them. All of which brings us back to Albert Thompson. British citizen by birth, four decades living in the UK, but he did not have the papers. Simple as that. Didn't have the passport. 
there was no record. He hadn't got a national insurance number in the past 20 years. So he didn't show up on any of the new IT databases. And that is why his life was turned upside down, because after several generations of people saying, we think our borders should be open, it's good for migrants to come in, and then panicking and saying, no, they should all be kicked out again, and getting crueler and crueler and introducing more and more legislation, and at the same time saying, well, OK, actually, net migration will carry on going on at a certain rate, but we're going to say it's a bad thing that's bad for us and bad for our economy. He got caught up in the most recent iteration of that panic, which is the Windrush scandal and the hostile environment. One quick detour on Theresa May. She gave a speech when she became Prime Minister on steps outside Number 10. Huge moment for any Prime Minister to make their mark as PM for the first time. And here's what she said in her speech. And this is one of the best speeches that you could ever hope to hear, just in terms of, of, of rhetoric and the rest of it. So she said, if you're from an ordinary working-class family, life is much harder than many people in Westminster realise. You have a job, but you don't always have job security. You have your own home, but you worry about paying a mortgage. You can just about manage, but you worry about the cost of living and getting your kids into a good school. If you're one of those families, if you're just managing, I want to address you directly. I know you're working around the clock. I know you're doing your best. And I know that sometimes life can be a struggle. The government I lead will be driven not by the interests of the privileged few, but by yours. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds great. But within months, she was deporting people of colour, British citizens, with every right to live in the UK, because she was so panicked about immigration and did not know how to handle it and ended up creating some of the worst policy this country has ever seen and which continues to have an absolutely divisive impact in the country. Very quickly, why? There's obviously a big missing chunk here. Why do politicians feel the need to do this? Um, I haven't talked about the public and public views and public voting patterns and all the rest of it, not very much. So the British public, I always think, are a wary and a sceptical bunch. They're wary and sceptical on most things, they're wary and sceptical on immigration. This chart is a little bit user-unfriendly, but basically what it shows is the majorities of the British public at any given time who think that immigration to the UK is too high. And the thing that you'll notice is that maybe with one exception, one of those green square blocks is always above 50%. There's always a majority of people who think immigration to the UK is too high. Was it too high in 1965 when there was some movement from the colonies but not really anywhere else? Yes, the British public thought so. What about in 1980 when net migration was actually negative? There were more people leaving the country than coming in. Too high. What about before? Anyway, you get the picture. No matter what's happening in the real world, the British public have always been worried about immigration. Um, Kerry is probably more of an expert than I am on some of the questions about how much the media creates that atmosphere and how much it reflects public opinion. I will say that politicians in general are very, very aware of it. But they also get it wrong. And here's what I mean by getting it wrong. The British public does not back particularly brutal stuff. Deportation centres, most people in the UK don't know they exist. And on the occasions when they have been revealed to exist, let alone that some of the people who have been put in there have been put in there having worked their entire lives in the UK, pretty much appalled by the whole thing. You'll notice that Lib Dems and Labour actually have policies at the moment which are about closing down those detention centres because they recognise that there is more than enough space in public opinion to say we don't want them, we don't think this is a British way of going about things. 
The other thing that is really important is that the British public will distinguish between good and bad migrants. And even as I say the words, they stick in my throat because I know how damaging and dangerous that whole way of thinking is. But there is no getting away from the fact that the UK public does make a distinction between people who have, for example, worked in the NHS, got to the end of their lives, and are now facing immigration enforcement, versus the same thing for people who have not lived in the UK as long and maybe have broken laws while they're here. The UK see that as two, uh, UK public see that as two very different categories of people. It is almost impossible to get away from that. Someone gave me a very good example recently where they said, look, this person said, I have two brothers, and I prefer one of them to the other one. I have a good brother and a bad brother. On the street where I live in East London, I have neighbours who I like and neighbours who I don't like. So there's already this driven-in idea that people have a good versus bad sort of dichotomy in their heads. The attempt, I think, by a lot of immigration charities to say, but that must never be applied to immigrants, kind of falls on deaf ears. I think there has to be another way of going about convincing people of the progressive case. Which brings me on to Nick Robinson. So we're going to have a quick two minutes of Nick Robinson chatting just after the Brexit election to some people to try and find out what sort of immigration is acceptable to them and what is not. And I hope you'll be pleasantly surprised by what he finds. Welcome to one of the top Brexit-backing areas in the country, Mansfield in Nottinghamshire. 70% here voted to leave, and it doesn't take you very long to find a clue as to why that was. Do you want to see immigration the same? Do you want to see it cut? Do you want to see it go on? Cut. But, you think it yeah. should be cut? Yeah, it you should do. be cut. Do you think we need to cut immigration in this country? Yes. Do you think immigration needs to be cut? Mm, yeah. You do? I do. Honestly, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so far, so simple then. What's a little more tricky is deciding who exactly should be let into the country and who should be kept out. Yeah. Ask you a question. Do you think immigration in this country needs to be cut? Yes, I do. Who should come in, then? Who should we let in? Um, professional people. Professional? Yeah. What, people with skills? People with skills, yeah. Should we let any unskilled people come in? Well, I should think... I think that should be monitored. Well, let me just ask you about a few different groups. This is my happy families game. Right. Do you think we should have um, foreign bricklayers coming into the country? Oh, yeah. You would let foreign bricklayers? Yeah. OK. What about fruit pickers? Controlled, I think. But would they come in? Well, controlled, yeah. So Certain some would come in. Yeah. Some foreign fruit pickers. What about care workers looking after the elderly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, so we'd have some yeah. of them from abroad. Lorry drivers? Yes. You haven't said no to anybody yet. What about chefs? Depends. They call it chefs, yes. Some, <laughs> some chefs, OK. Yeah. Who don't you want to come in? Uh, well, yeah. you know, just say it's got to be controlled. But you haven't identified a single job that you don't want foreigners to do. It's not the jobs, it's the people who want to come over and sit on the backside and, and do, do nothing. And do scroungers. nothing. Yeah. Scroungers, yes. But in this area, do you think a lot of the immigrants are scroungers? No. No, Most no. of them are hard workers. Prepared to work. See, what's interesting to me is you want to see immigration cut. Yeah. Every yeah. single job I showed you, you said yeah. we need them coming from abroad. So who is it that who is it we stop coming then? Well I don't know. Oh, you've stumped me. Yeah? I'm stumped for words. OK, I can't, I can't stress enough. I don't show that because I want to kind of laugh or pick out the people who are in it, but because 
if you, and I'm not trying to wish this on anybody, but if you spend a lot of time in focus groups and talking to pollsters about immigration stuff, and in my life I've spent far too much time. The gentleman in the middle there, the gentleman who's shown every single one of the pictures, he's pretty typical. He's pretty typical of a great sway of the British public who say, I'm very worried about immigration, very worried about it indeed, and then when given the benefits in a nice, simple, easy-to-understand way that references his normal life, says, well, I can see the benefit. Of course I can see why this person should come in. Yes, 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 yes. Also, tellingly, people worried about, and I'm not sure it's very helpful <laughs> to introduce the word scroungers. I don't think that's the right word at all. But uh, when asked, well, what about people who don't contribute? I think the guy said, sit on their arse. What about the people who come in and don't do anything? They said, well, they're not here. They're somewhere else. They're not in my town. So what have you got? You've got a composite picture of people who instinctively say, well, I'm worried about immigration. Then say, I think all these people contribute and should be part of our future life and should be allowed to come in. And say, where I live, actually, this isn't much of a problem, but I've heard it's a problem down the road. So I'm just going to conclude with uh, a picture which I suspect you will all think is absolutely ludicrous beyond belief. There he is, look at There's Trump kissing a flag. If you've ever seen the video of that, what he actually does is he leans in and he says, and I quote, I love you, baby, to the flag. It is absolutely absurd. But here's the thing that it tells us. The other side, the people who are very successfully pushing migration restrictions and are using the media and politicians to do that, are very good at symbols. They understand the power of symbolic stuff. Not complicated arguments. I mentioned earlier migrants pay more net into the economy than they take out. True. Almost entirely. Like if you ever test that in a focus group, you tell people that, dead. Doesn't make any difference. Nobody changes their mind if you tell them that. They either don't believe it, or they think the benefits are accruing to someone else, but not them. So how do you make the case differently? Well, on the other side, you've got people kissing flags, and you've got people saying that a blue passport is more important than a magenta one. And the truth is, those are very effective. People mention them off their own back, how important it is to them, the Brexit vote particularly, people talk about passports, they do. They see it as a symbol. Matthew Goodwin, the historian, wrote, many people still feel very committed to their nation-state. According to the esteemed World Value Survey, overwhelming majorities of people across the US and Europe say they feel strongly attached to their nation, an average of 82%, see themselves as part of their nation, 93%, and would be willing to fight for their nation, 90%. Nine out of ten people on average across US and Europe would say that they would fight for their country. So here's my conclusion. If anyone here or anyone you know ever wants to go and write about immigration, like I do, or go and work in Parliament on immigration, which I have done, you should all do a module in English literature first. Just one, just for a few weeks. And look at the power of symbols, because what is it that we've got in our locker on the other side of this argument, that we can set up against the flag and set up against the passport. And it's all right, because we have already seen what that is. It is Nick Robinson flashing through his cards and having a nurse, looks like they work in the NHS, carrying a hot water bottle. Is there a symbol, is there a better symbol of something that is about care and return to the hot water bottle? You tell me. But also, it's already there. We've already seen this guy say that he values the people who come in and do these jobs. But we're not using the symbols on this side, or at least not well enough and not yet. So if I have a practical conclusion, it would be, for all the story and how we got here, and for all the horrors we've experienced and people have had to face along the way, it's an argument that can still be won, 
but I think it's a bit of a slog, and that's where we start. Thank you.